1: This episode is brought to you by UBiome.
2: Your gut feeling can tell you a lot, but your gut can also tell you not just what you may be feeling, but something about your actual health, like what may be causing your IBS symptoms like discomfort or bloating. Your gut is home to trillions of microbes that affect your health in countless ways, including digestion, mood, and your ability to fight illness. Ubiome makes understanding it simple with SmartGut, a quick and easy at-home test that screens for microbes associated with IBS, IBD, prediabetes, and many other chronic conditions. Your SmartGut test can help you and your healthcare provider understand how your gut microbes may be affecting other aspects of your health, such as cardiovascular conditions and kidney stones. Sampling is quick and easy. It takes less than three minutes, and you can do it at home. SmartGut is reimbursed by most healthcare insurance and must be ordered by healthcare provider. Request your SmartGut test today. Just go to ubiome.com slash friends. That's U-B-I-O-M-E dot slash friends. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast.
1: I'm beginning to think that your judgment has been clouded by ideology. I don't fully understand where it's coming from, but I'll let our viewers decide. I
3: think your judgment has been clouded by ratings because you feel compelled to be a spokesman for Donald Trump in order to win (laughs) ratings on the Fox News channel. That's pretty funny.
2: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is Max Boot. He's a former member in good standing of the conservative movement, turned, I think, more than a never Trumper. He is, as he puts it, a confused conservative. Um, I introduced him to the term of perhaps being a recovering Republican. He doesn't know what he is. But unlike a lot of never Trumpers out there, he's done some real introspection about how we got to the place we're at. He was a proponent of the Iraq War, which upsets me. It may upset a lot of you. I think that's something that uh, we are going to have to work through somehow. Um, those of us uh, opposing Trump, because a lot of the people opposing Trump also supported, you know, what I think of as one of the biggest disasters in American foreign policy history. Going to have to be some discussions. And Max and I do have a discussion about it. It is not the most comfortable one, but it is a conversation worth listening to? And here it is. I'd like to welcome on the show today Max Boot. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a columnist for The Washington Post, and a global affairs analyst for CNN. He is the author of The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. And he is also bringing back hats (laughs) single-handedly.
3: That's right. I've got my fedora, but I'm not wearing it because I'm wearing headphones.
2: Do you have it with you? Do you carry it with you? Yes,
3: yes. I was wearing it into the studio.
2: I love it. I absolutely love it. So you're not a former conservative. You say you're still conservative. Uh, You are a one-time member of the conservative movement. I guess that would be the the erstwhile thing here.
3: Yeah, I guess I would say I'm a confused conservative.
2: (laughs) Confused conservative, but really like the interesting thing about the biography you bring to bear is that you're not just some, you know, run-of-the-mill mill GOPer. Like you were a part of the a part of the vanguard, a Wall Street Journal editorial writer, a proponent of the Iraq War, like all that jazz.
3: Yeah, I was I was a made guy. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> and, and not only are you a never a Trumper, I just want to read some of the topics you've been writing on lately. Uh, you've written about the discovery of your white privilege. You have expressed, I would say, cautious admiration for Beto O'Rourke and moderate gun control. You've written several columns critical of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. You've written in favor of impeachment. uh, And you have said that you would welcome Obama back. And why I changed my mind about diversity and academia. This is quite a journey, I guess, sometimes as we say in social justice circles.
3: Yes, it is. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the election of Donald Trump really threw me for a loop. (laughs) uh, Because it really called into question everything I devoted my life to. You know, it, it made me think... You know, how is it possible that all these people that I thought were these principal advocates of this high-minded conservatism that I myself espoused, how could they possibly uh, be endorsing uh, somebody who is such a malign and sinister figure who espouses racism and xenophobia and sexism and every other uh, terrible-ism uh, in, in the universe? What, what the heck happened? And it's you know, th- th- there was already some some doubt growing in my mind about kind of the mainstream conservative movement in the Republican Party. But I mean, this was really a crisis moment. It made me reevaluate a lot of things uh, and made me leave the Republican Party. It's led to the sundering of of old friendships. It's really made me reassess the world. And, and you're seeing some of the fruits of that reassessment in, in my current writings, including in this book.
2: And I'm torn about how to proceed, I have to say, because part of me wants to drill down on on what made these former colleagues and friends of yours decide to to throw their lot in with Trump. And then part of me wants to drill down on, like, what makes you different? I think that the the first question most people who I ask, uh, who are never Trumpers, when I ask them about their former friends and colleagues, uh, the general answer has to do with opportunism, uh, careerism, uh, pretty sort of blatantly self-serving ideals. Is that something that that you've come to believe as well?
3: I think that's part of it. I think there is also very strong tribal identification. I mean, I had this bizarre conversation, really soul-crushing conversation with one of my best friends in uh, the summer of 2016, around the time that uh, Donald Trump was nailing down the Republican nomination. And this was somebody— who initially had been just as aghast as I was at the emergence of Donald Trump, who was just as convinced as I was that Trump was unfit to be president. He was this sinister buffoon who should not be within, you know, 100 miles of the White House. And yet, by the time that Donald Trump was becoming the choice of the Republican Party, my friend was happy to fall into line. And so I had this conversation with him where he basically said, you know, Max, your problem is that you think that politics is about ideas. You don't realize it's really about tribes. I'm you know part of the Republican tribe so I got to go with my tribe and I, I I was that was just threw me for a loop. I couldn't believe it because I've always thought that the reason why I was a Republican was because uh, the Republican Party was was the party that was closest to my ideals. but for my friend and for a lot of other people, they're just a Republican no matter what it espouses even if it changes 180 degrees, they're with the Republican party no matter what and I, I just you know I can't understand that and then you know for, For a lot of other people out there, they're actually very happy about uh, this new Republican Party 2.0 that Donald Trump has created, which is openly uh, racist and nativist and xenophobic, isolationist, protectionist, and all the rest of it. All these things that I'm aghast at, for a lot of people, uh, it's not the downside, it's the main attraction. That's why they love Donald Trump, because he has tapped into a lot of these dark sentiments, this dark underbelly of the Republican Party, which was kept partially hidden for a long time, but has now emerged and has become the dominant sentiment right out there in the open.
2: Partially hidden is an interesting construction. Maybe maybe we'll come back to just how hidden that was. But I think what you're saying makes me think what I I really do want to talk about is, is what makes you different from the people that threw their lot in, even maybe reluctantly and then not so reluctantly with Trump. One thing you say in the book is the difference between my friend and me is that I had always seen my primary allegiance as being to conservative principles rather than to the Republican Party. I think in that passage, you're talking about the same friend you just were referencing. Right. Yeah. And the thing I think that's interesting about that is that I hear that from a lot of people who who, on both sides, (laughs) I mean, and by both sides, I mean, never Trumpers and Trumpers, Um, you know i've i've talked to people who've come to support trump and especially the ones that kind of became the anti anti trump people kind of the mm-hmm. late blossoming trump supporters right what i hear from them is that well you know he's vulgar he's terrible i don't support his you know personal life i don't support you know whatever but he's doing things that that are good for conservative principle they'll say that like this is an argument that ted cruz makes um, this is an argument I feel like Rich Lowry has made. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, I think we could say Lindsey Graham perhaps. I, I want to talk to you about Lindsey Graham, by the way. But Yeah. And so I'm really interested in actually why you personally weren't swayed by that.
3: Well, I will admit that there are a few things that, that Donald Trump does that any other uh, Republican or conservative president would have done and that most conservatives are fine with. For example, you know, most of the judges or, you know, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which is something I approved of, or even the tax cuts, even though I think they were done in a very irresponsible fashion that are are growing the deficit out of control. But nevertheless, the idea of tax cuts is certainly Republican orthodoxy. But, you know, the, the argument that I make is I don't care if he delivers on a few conservative policy priorities. The cost is way too high that uh, Trump supporters have to swallow way too much rancid garbage to get a few small policy victories. And that includes essentially alienating most of our allies, uh, starting to deconstruct the the American-led world order that was created by the greatest generation, and signing up for a president who is balkanizing America, who is exacerbating our racial divisions, who speaks in ways that no person should ever speak about women or minorities— uh, or immigrants I mean it's just disgusting And Republicans used to be all holier than thou When Bill Clinton was president They talked about how important it was to have character in the White House And I'm naive enough that I still believe that So the, the hypocrisy of Republicans Who were castigating Bill Clinton And applauding Donald Trump Who's a hundred times worse Way more offensive than, 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 than Bill Clinton ever was It is just nauseating I just I can't sign up for it And I just can't, can't you know figure out uh, how uh, so many Republicans have, have made this devil's bargain.
2: And I, I do think what's interesting with you is that, you know, so for my good friend Rick Wilson, who's on the show a fair amount, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he and I can sit around and mock Trump together, and that is a very good time, and you should listen to those <laughs> yeah. episodes, and everyone enjoys them.
3: Rick is good at, good at that, yeah.
2: He's very good at that. But he and I kind of part ways sometimes about the social justice things, let's say. Um, so about gun control, and I would say about the degree to which one should resist Trump. Like, he still is right now in a believer in undervoting. Like, he's just not going to vote for some Republicans, but he won't vote Democratic. Whereas you have come out and said you're voting straight party Democratic and other concerned Republicans should, too, because that party needs to be burned to the ground.
3: Absolutely. Know? Yeah.
2: So, Rick isn't quite there. And for so, for Rick, I feel like the metaphor is like he—whatever— he, has realizes Trump is bad, and that's made him question some things, but he's kind of still sort of thinks of himself like, perhaps just as a conservative, definitely, and thinks of Trump as an aberration. Whereas you, I feel like the metaphor for you is that your Jenga tower of beliefs has tumbled.
3: Yeah. I mean, what I said in the book was I would like to be able to say what Ronald Reagan said, which was that, I did not leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. I'd like to be able to say that about the Republican Party, but it wouldn't be 100 percent accurate because I think my beliefs have been changing. And, you know, since kind of getting out of the uh, Republican bubble, which I've done since the rise of Trump, it's made me rethink a lot of things. It's made me realize that I was voicing, at least passively, support for views that I don't think make a lot of sense. Like, You know, why should Americans be allowed to carry around military-style assault weapons? Ronald Reagan was in favor of banning assault weapons. Why is Republican orthodoxy now that anybody should be able to get any kind of gun that they want? I think that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, for years, I kind of muted any any disagreement, even in my own head, that I might have had with Republican orthodoxy in the name of tribal loyalty. And that's all done. I mean, I'm through with that. I I don't— I don't give a shit if I'm allowed to say that. Uh, you know, I, I I'm I, I'm through with party loyalty. I'm through with with, you know, checking my brain at the door and, and going along with what everybody else on the right is saying. I, I, I am determined now to think for myself because I realized that by being silent in the past, I was becoming complicit in a lot of bad things, in the in the covert racism and 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 misogyny and uh, you know the, these other trends that the that the Republican Party kind of winked at and and uh, and dog whistled to, uh, and, and that have now become explicit. And so I have been, you know, uh, rethinking a lot of things. It's not just Donald Trump, although Donald Trump is a big part of it. But for example, you know, I used to be you know, reflexively pro-law enforcement. I was skeptical of minority complaints about law enforcement. And then you see all these videotapes of police officers committing uns- committing unspeakable brutality against African-Americans. And that was a wake-up moment for me, like saying, wait a second, all these all these black folks who have been talking about police brutality, they were right. There's, there's the evidence. Or, you know, when feminists talk about the patriarchy, I used to scoff about that. And now you see the Me Too movement and all this evidence of this heinous behavior from everybody, from Harvey Weinstein to Charlie Rose, and and for that matter, Donald Trump, and I, you know, I can't resist reality. I I, I just have to admit what's before my eyes that there is a lot of justice in these complaints, and so I, I can't just stick to the kind of conservative orthodox talking points anymore.
2: And I hear that in you right now, and I, and I, I, you know, in the book, you say something about, um, you know, your your worldview and reality came into conflict, and reality is now winning, and you know as someone kind of on the other side or whatever, part of me wants to just like applaud you and welcome you, like give you a big hug, tell you to come on in. And then part of me feels like we need to talk more about that complicity. And I wonder how much you've wrestled with that. Like you have a line in the book, you say, did I somehow contribute to the rise of this dark force in American life with my advocacy of conservatism? Have you answered that question to your own satisfaction? I
3: think the answer is yes. I mean, I, I try to be, you know, I, I think I'm pretty hard on myself in the book. And I, in particular, uh, renounce my support for the invasion of Iraq, which for a long time I was not willing to admit was a mistake because I was, you know, in a defensive crouch. And, and now I am. And, and I realize that aside from being a disaster, for the people of Iraq and for the region, it was a disaster for American politics because the the the, the mess in Iraq uh, really disenchanted a lot of people with the mainstream leadership of the Republican Party and created an opening for these uh, populists like Donald Trump. Same thing with the you know Great Recession of two thousand seven two thousand eight, which. I'm, I don't have much personal connection to, but I think it's fair to say that some of the mess we got into is a reflection of the laissez-faire ideology that I have certainly held my entire life. So I don't want to, you know, escape complicity here. I think I was complicit in, in the conservative movement, uh, and I was I certainly made some, some horrible mistakes. But I think my my biggest complicity was simply in not speaking up and kind of going along and getting along because. You know, I was in the national security lane. I, I've always defined myself as a foreign policy expert, and I had some misgivings about some of this other stuff going on about the you know, denials of climate science or uh, you know, what I now realize was, uh, was you know, uh, trying to mobilize racist support at election time and, and kind of the know-nothingism uh, and, and the deranged uh, populism that became a main staple of, of Fox News, for example— I mean, I saw some of that stuff going on, and I I kind of rolled my eyes at it or I laughed, but I didn't speak out, and I didn't think I had an obligation to speak out because, you know, I was this uh, foreign policy nerd, and that's, that's what I did. But now I, I've just, you know, rethought everything, and I realize that these forces that have been unleashed and that— Uh, were there long before Donald Trump came along, but that he has really harnessed and and ridden into the White House. These are the biggest national security threats we face. It's a bigger threat than anything that we face abroad. And and I really feel an obligation to speak out about this stuff. And, and, you know, that's part of the reason why I I left the Republican Party is I want to say not in my name. I mean, you guys can do this, but I don't want to be associated with it. It's disgusting.
2: And again, I'm sort of torn here because there is an impulse, I think, that Those of us who have, you know, been shouting about these causes for a while, like, just want to say, yes, welcome to the team. And then, you know, I, I, I talk about recovery a fair amount on the show sometimes to some people's annoyance. But, um, you know, one of the things I bring up a, a lot has to do with responsibility um, and amends. And so I guess part of me wonders with, with what you're talking about, given the damage done by some of these ideas and by your advocacy of these ideas. Do you think renouncing them is enough?
3: Well, I mean, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I you know, I I've certainly taken personal responsibility for things like the advocacy of the war in Iraq. I mean, I'm I'm not going to take responsi- personal responsibility for, you know, things like the racist campaigns or the denial of climate science and so forth because I wasn't personally doing that, but my comp- my, I, I do think I was complicit in keeping silent and, and, and you know, taking this go-along, get-along attitude. So I, I bear that share of blame. And, I mean, I'm just trying to be, you know, as honest as I can and to speak out as forcefully as I can, even though it has been a difficult and, uh, and wrenching process for me. I mean, I don't know what else I can do, but, I mean, if you have suggestions, I'll take them.
2: You know what? Um, the fact that you asked that question makes me feel like you have— you're at least on the journey about figuring out the answer to it. Like, I don't have an immediate answer for you. But other people might. And the fact that you're open to hearing that stuff, I think personally that means a lot to me. I don't want to, like, because I don't want to make you feel unwelcome. Like, I don't want to tell you, like, like, oh, you've done all this soul-searching and it's not enough. But, you know, there for some, especially uh, on the Iraq war, like, there are some of us that that still hurts
3: a lot. Yeah, I mean, I can can understand that, yeah.
2: That this thing happened that was so tragic. And there were plenty of people that felt like we could see it coming. But I don't want to get bogged down in that too much. I actually want to return again to the Jenga Tower, which is that I do feel like I see in you, again, like the whole tower fell down. And for some people, even Never Trumpers, Their tower is still standing. And I wonder if you have any insight as to why, for you, it was such a a complete undermining of what you thought you
3: knew. That's a great question. I mean, I don't—I'm not really sure why. It's been more cataclysmic for me, I guess, than it has been for others. I guess because others can—you know, there's there's that kind of comforting myth that I think some other never-Trumpers— Indulge in which is to say that basically everything was fine with the Republican Party and the conservative movement until this thug named Donald Trump came along and he upset everything and you know he transformed it beyond recognition and I you know there have been times when I've said that as well this is not the party of Ronald Reagan and you know this is not the party that I grew up with which is certainly true but I also you know have done some real soul searching and some historical research and analysis which I write about in the book and it makes me realize that Donald Trump is not as much of an aberration as I had imagined. And I can't plausibly say that I am a better representative of conservatism than Donald Trump is because we both represent different strains of American conservatism. And frankly, his strain probably has more popular support than my strain does. I mean, it's it's kind of chastening to realize that, to, to realize what what an outlier I am. I mean, I wish I could say that you know he was just some alien uh, who came out here from outer space and and took over the Republican Party. But that's just not the reality. The reality is these trends of, you know, racism and, and know-nothingism and protectionism and isolationism, they have been there all along. And there was much more support for them all along than I had realized in the past because I was in denial and I was, you know, willfully blind when when liberals said, hey, Republicans are appealing to racism. I thought that was a gross libel because I said, well, you know, I'm not racist. My friends aren't racist. So the Republican Party isn't racist. And I'm realizing in in hindsight, what the hell was I thinking? Of course. I mean, how else do you interpret, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy talking mm-hmm. about states' rights or the Willie Horton ad in 1988 or so many other things? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was obvious to you and, and others all along. And I feel like I was in this ideological bubble that that blinded me to to a lot of unpleasant realities. But it's very, very hard to break out of that ideological bubble because it really becomes a substitute for independent thought. And there is that powerful dynamic of tribal solidarity. I think we're all basically hardwired to be parts members of a tribe. And so it feels weird for me right now that I don't have a tribe. I'm an independent. I'm politically homeless. I don't really know where I belong. And I really don't know. I mean, I'm glad you said the word journey because that is kind of my feeling. I don't know where this journey is taking me. I mean, it's taking me out of the Republican Party. It hasn't yet taken me into the Democratic Party. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But my beliefs are in flux, and I'm really trying to reexamine things and look at the evidence and trying to reach the best conclusions I can instead of relying on these ideological crutches uh, that I've been leaning on for so many decades. But it's very, very hard to kick away those uh, ideological crutches.
2: We got new sheets around here. Uh, If you listen to the show regularly, you know that we have a puppy and he's tough on sheets. He really likes tearing around the bed. And by that, I mean tearing around the bed. And so we have to wash our sheets a lot. And the Brooklyn and sheets get softer with every wash, which I've come to realize maybe is a high-end sheets thing because I've never experienced it before. But I've never had really high-end sheets before. Brooklyn In sheets were named the winner of the best online betting category by Good Housekeeping, and they have received rave reviews from places like Business Insider. With more than 20,000 five-star reviews, Brooklinen is the fastest-growing betting brand in the world. It was founded in 2014 by husband and wife Vicky and Rich Fulop, and their mission was to bring five-star hotel-quality sheets to everyday life. Most bedding is marked up by as much as 300%. But by taking the middleman out of the equation and delivering directly to the consumer, Brooklyn is able to give you luxury sheets without the luxury markup. And they don't just feel great. They look great too. We got white and a dark gray because dark gray stands up to puppy pretty well. Uh, For ours, there are lots of colors and textures available. My Brooklyn and sheets are awesome. They're the best. They're really comfortable and they're cool. They've got that cool, kind of like smooth feeling to them. And brooklinen.com is giving my listeners an exclusive offer. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code FRIENDS at brooklinen.com. They are so sure you'll love your new sheets. They offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. So remember, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code FRIENDS at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N. En.com promo code FRIENDS. Brooklyn in, these really are the best sheets ever. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom. In a tight, 30 minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis in conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza, from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation, and of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim and immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Midi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at TheIntercept.com Deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I sort of just realized, like, why I keep on trying, like, what makes you different, what makes you different is, you know, spoiler alert, it's because I want to replicate the experiment, right? Like, (laughs) I want to be able to find, if I can figure out what made you have this cataclysmic realization, then maybe I can, you know, put something in the water of my in-laws, right? Right. (laughs) Right.
3: Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, remember, I'm also, I mean, I also have a kind of unusual life story because I am not a, a typical American, I guess, except insofar as every American is different. But, you know, I mean, I wasn't born in this country. I came here as a six-year-old kid from the Soviet Union. So I had this very starry-eyed, idealistic view of America as the greatest country in the world. And I'm, you know, I, I still think it's a great country, but I think that my faith in America kind of blinded me to the dark side of things. And then I grew up in the 1980s, uh, you know, as a, somebody who was a huge fan of, of Ronald Reagan and the vision of conservatism that he embraced. And so I tended to buy into what, what people like that were selling. and I, I don't think I, in, in the end, had a, an objective, independent view. And that's something that I'm starting to develop. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm on this weird personal journey, <laughs> and, and ideological journey, and I just— you know, I don't know that it's easily replicable to anybody else.
2: I don't know if it is either. I, I, I do spend a fair amount of time looking at the ranks of the never Trumpers, including my own husband, and trying to think about what they have in common, though. I do think it's really interesting that a lot of those who have become not just never Trumpers, but continue to speak out against him, were Iraq war advocates. I find that fascinating. Uh, do you think there's something there?
3: Um, yeah, I don't know if that's true, because I think almost all Republicans were Iraq War advocates. I, I mean, even Donald Trump was an Iraq War advocate, even though he prefers to, to forget about that now.
2: I guess what I mean, like real leaders of it, though, like Bill Kristol and David Frum and you, not just advocates, but like...
3: But I mean, I think we have something else in common beyond advocacy for the Iraq War, which was pretty widespread in the Republican Party. Uh, what You know, one trend that I've noticed... and. I can't prove this scientifically, but just anecdotally, I think a lot of the never-Trumpers are minorities of of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are either Jewish or Mormon in particular, and I think there's also a number who are national security types, and and maybe that overlaps with support for the Iraq War. But I think the national security types uh, tend to be less ideological and more concerned with promoting a bipartisan vision of American foreign policy, which Donald Trump is very much at odds with. Uh, whereas I think, you know, the people, the Republicans who have been uh, the most eager Kool Aid drinkers, I think tend to be uh, the evangelical uh, 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 Christians. That's Donald Trump's strongest base of support. But also, I think Catholics, uh, you know, especially from working class backgrounds, I've noticed that those those conservatives, including quite a number that I had great respect for, have pretty eagerly flocked to the uh, to the Trump standard. Whereas I think. You know, uh, Jewish conservatives like I'm Jewish or, you know, Bill Kristol, David Fromm, or Mormons like Evan McMullen or Mitt Romney or Jeff Flake, for that matter, have been more resistant.
2: I do think that that, drawing out that idea that Jewish people and LDS members have have shown particular resistance to the Trump romance is interesting. I agree that— like when I talked to Evan McMullen about this and, and actually just some friends of mine that are Mormon who are conservative, but also very much against Trump. What I've heard from them is that they have in their memory, like their immediate family memory, uh, stories of persecution. And that that has, has been something that has made them resistant to Trump.
3: I think that's it. I think with Jews and Mormons and other minorities, uh, we we kind of feel like you know, if there is authoritarianism dawning in America, if if there is heavy handed majority rule, we're going to be victims of that. We're not going to be considered part of the majority, and 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 we've we've had that experience before. And, and I think we're very sensitive to it. In my case, especially sensitive to it, because remember, I I fled with my family from the Soviet Union, uh, and you know, I, I thank my lucky stars that. That my 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 single mother took me and my grandmother out of out of the Soviet Union in 1976, because I couldn't imagine what my life would be like, you know, growing up under under Putin's role today, and that's why it's especially uh, disorienting for me to see that there is an admirer of Vladimir Putin in the White House. I mean, how bizarre is that?
2: Oh, it's well, it's bizarre, and yet here it is. Here it is. Reality. Yeah. Again, sort of to come back to this idea that I'm trying to figure out what it is about you. Like, can I can I figure out how to you know put something in the water?
3: I feel like I'm like one of the hosts on on Westworld. You're gonna you <laughs> gonna like take my my brain out and and put it on the iPad and examine the data, right? Well,
2: you know, I mean, it's, I think a lot about it because um, this show we ask for um, listeners to send in questions about where politics and relationships have come into conflict, and guess what, like. Your story about losing friendships is really common, uh, and it also very common in families. And you know, I have different pieces of advice for people when they say, "How do I want, how do you get along?" versus "How do I change a mind?" and and usually, how to change a mind, I kind you can't, right? Right. But I'm still very curious about it. And it's interesting to me, though, that your story, in particular. Um, For instance, it isn't about having you having like met a bunch of Muslims who got, you know, uh, trapped here during the travel ban chaos. It isn't about having met a bunch of DACA recipients. Your story actually is very intellectual. It's, It's very much your own life story and your ability to empathize with these people rather than having actually heard a lot of personal stories.
3: I think that's true. I mean, it's, you know, the rise of Trump has really caused me to redefine how I view myself. Because, you know, when I came here in 1976, I was, you know, just a kid, went to elementary school, and I was very eager to assimilate. I mean, so much so that I rapidly uh, forgot Russian. I mean, I don't speak Russian anymore because I wanted to be all American, and, you know, my... uh, uh, my girlfriend, who's Korean American, uh, we kind of joke about this because she says, you know, initially she was attracted to me because she thought I was a fellow immigrant, and she's like bitterly disappointed to find out I'm <laughs> I'm really a white bread American. You know, I was I was really raised here from an early age. You know, I'm pretty uh, pretty typical, uh, you know, American suburban kid. You know, watching the uh, uh, NFL games and listening to Billy Joel and all the rest of it. Uh, I'm dating myself, I guess, from the 1980s here, but. Donald Trump has caused me to reassess that identity and realize, wait a second, I'm not a mainstream American. I mean, he's really making me think I'm an outsider. I'm an immigrant, I'm a Jew. I'm really somebody who's at odds with the mainstream of American society. I don't like that feeling, but that is, you know, that is how he is making me feel. And I guess part of that is also empathizing with with other minorities. And I was particularly hit hard, I have to say, by uh, his animus against the dreamers, you know, these these kids who were brought here illegally by their parents. And that Trump would like to deport if, if the court, uh, if these various courts ever lift their, their court orders stopping him from doing that. Because, I mean, these are kids who came to the United States when they were roughly my age. And, you know, I was six years old. I mean, I can't imagine what would I do if I were deported to Russia, a country whose language I don't speak. I don't know anything about Russia. And I probably would not be very welcome having, you know, spent a lot of years very harshly critiquing uh, the, the current dictator of Russia and so I can't imagine all these kids being deported to, to whatever countries their parents came from. I mean, that is so cruel, so heartless, and that's really the essence of Trumpism in my mind. And it's making me realize that, you know, however much I want to assimilate, I can never be 100% part of the majority culture. I ultimately am on the side of the minorities here.
2: I think, you know, when I when we try to say what do, what do the— you know, courageous never-Trumpers have in common. I mean, you said minorities. I think outsiders might be even better uh, description of, of what some of them have in common. Like, they're people who have been outside of a group at some point. Yeah, yeah. And know what that feels like.
3: Right. That's true. And I mean, I mean it's funny because a lot of us never-Trumpers are accused of the by the pro-Trump Republicans of basically opposing Trump because we want social acceptance, because we want to be uh, you know, invited to these mythical Georgetown cocktail parties, which I've never been to and have no desire to attend in the future. But the reality is I've been perfectly comfortable being an outsider, being a conservative minority, and growing up in places like LA, Berkeley, New Haven, Cambridge, Mass., New York. These are not exactly conservative heartbeds. But I was Perfectly happy being this outsider, this outlier. That was actually a lot of my identity. Was that I was a contrarian, a rebel, somebody who was not afraid to speak, you know, unpleasant truths to the liberal establishment. So the notion that you know, at age forty-nine, all of a sudden I'm dying for mainstream social acceptance and can't stand, you know, being isolated and in a minority is is absurd. I mean, I've I've reveled in being an outsider and a minority, uh, but. Uh, that was when I was standing up for what I viewed as conservative principles, and I'm not going to stand up for this, you know, white nationalism that Trump espouses, or or defend his his uh, you know just his crazy, erratic, off the charts behavior.
2: You've made a few references to the personal and social cost that you've um, paid for reexamining your views, and I wonder, uh, yeah, how has that been? Has that has that been tough?
3: It's 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 been in some ways soul crushing because it's made me reassess relationships with a lot of people that I was close to for a lot of years, and it makes me realize, wait a second, uh, maybe these aren't the people that I thought that they were. I mean, how could they possibly be going along with with what I view is is just this intolerable abuse that that Donald Trump engages in on a daily basis? I mean, have they changed, or were were they somebody else all along? And I mean that's that's been difficult. I mean, you know, the, again, the, these are these the, these are social circles I was part of, the people who supported me, people who I thought were you know battling the trenches alongside of me, and living in places like New York, you kind of felt embattled in this very liberal city. There was this, you know, active conservative intellectual minority, and we felt like, you know, we had to stick together against uh, the hostility of 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 mainstream society and. And that's that's what sustained me for a lot of years, and you know, people I worked with, and and uh, you know, drank with, and went to dinner with, and so forth. And now they're they're strangers. I don't recognize them anymore. It's it's been a disorienting experience.
2: I want to ask you in a sort of general way, like who has disappointed you? But we're running short on time, and I have a specific person I want to ask about, which is Lindsey Graham. So I covered the McCain campaign and got to know Lindsay like not like we're not best friends or anything, but I I really thought I knew him. And the person I've seen on display on my TV the past couple weeks, like it's been a real shock to me. I can't imagine what it must feel like for you.
3: Uh, yeah, I feel the same sense of shock. I mean, with Lindsay and, and a bunch of others, I mean, not just them, also Paul Ryan, Marco Rubio, and other people that I admired. I mean, with Lindsay, I you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, maybe this is what happens when he doesn't have John McCain around to guide him anymore. And I think there may be some truth to that. But I mean, I, I don't recognize the Lindsey Graham on display here. I mean, I, I remember the old one who called Donald Trump a kook. <laughs> that, that's the Lindsey Graham I thought I knew. And that's the one I, I, I liked and sympathized with. But this new Lindsey Graham, you know, who's, who's hyperventilating uh, on behalf of Brett Kavanaugh and acting as a sycophant to, to Donald Trump, you know, I don't know where that came from.
2: Is he one of the most disappointing or do you have a, have a, a list that goes higher?
3: It's, there's a long list. He's certainly on it. I would say Paul Ryan may be the most disappointing because he is somebody who I you know perhaps naively had the highest hopes for. I had a lot of admiration for him because he was willing to touch the third rail of American politics, which was to advocate entitlement reform, which I think is something we need to do for our long-term fiscal health. And so it's been—and he was willing to call out Donald Trump for his racism, at least initially, when when, when Trump attacked Judge Curio. And I thought that Paul Ryan stood for this kind of Jack Kemp-style, bleeding-heart conservatism that would, you know, reach out to minorities, would overcome the history of racism, would, you know, make difficult economic decisions, but would also try to bring the country together and heal it. And, you know, he's just become another Trump lickspittle. I mean, it's been— horrifically disappointing. And his big priority always was, you know, to get uh, federal spending under control. And now it's more out of control than ever. I mean, the tax bill that that Paul Ryan presided over is going to give us trillion dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. I mean, I can see why he's retiring because he's failed in <laughs> his life's work. And it, but it's very disappointing to me that uh, he would go down so gently and, and in the end become a handmaid uh, to these Uh, to these forces that he supposedly opposed for so many years.
2: So it's interesting you mentioned entitlement reform and your apparently continued belief that that, that's something we we need to undertake because to me one of the most interesting things about the journey you've been on has been that you aren't just questioning some of the social uh, questions um, that Democrats and Republicans have had different answers to. But for instance, you said a little while back here that uh, your advocacy for laissez-faire markets and deregulation of uh, financial uh, you know, uh, industry is something that helped prepare the way for, for Trump. And I think in your book, you talk about income inequality. So are you also questioning some of the financial you know, truisms that the GOP has, has said it's for over the years?
3: No, it's definitely made me realize that uh, you know we do need effective regulation. Otherwise, you're going to have abuses like the out of control mortgage markets in the uh, in the 2000s that led to the financial meltdown of 2008, 2009. Uh, no question about it. But you know, I'm not becoming. I don't. You know, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I'm not becoming. <laughs> I have not become a Democrat. I'm not certainly a doctrinaire uh, uh, progressive by any stretch of the imagination. I'm I'm still very much a centrist, and I think a very moderate conservative, and and I still believe in in things like, uh, you know, fiscal discipline, which the modern Republican Party has given up on. I mean, I mean, the irony is, if you look at who's had the best fiscal record in, in in the modern history of the United States, it's probably Bill Clinton. He's the guy who actually balanced the budget in the 1990s, and ever since then, we've been spending money that we don't have, and, and Republicans. Are uh, actually worse than Democrats in that respect. So I'm, you know, I, I I think I'm what I'm advocating is kind of a small C conservatism, which is divorced from the kind of big C movement conservatism that I was part of. And to give you a sense of my evolution, you know, I grew up with my hero being Ronald Reagan. But at this point, I would say I'm more admiring of Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, who was considered way too liberal by the founders of the modern conservative movement in the 1950s. People like. William F. Buckley Jr. and Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. But it's making looking back at history, I realize I like Ike because he was moderate. He was not trying to promote a radical right-wing revolutionary agenda. He was trying to manage the country to be mainstream. And, you know, that's that's something I'd like to see. I mean, if I had to define my beliefs at this point, I would say I, you know, I used to think I was a Reagan Republican. Now I'd say I'm more of a rockefeller republican or really an eisenhower republican because i think ike was a much more uh, admirable figure than the nelson rockefeller
2: and of course uh, eisenhower is the one who's warned of the military industrial complex so
3: yeah he did and he sent you know troops into little rock to enforce desegregation he did you know a lot of things that that pissed off conservatives in his day but makes me realize hey he was right
2: There is a battle going on over the future of the internet and your right to privacy. Big corporations like ISPs and ad networks can sell your data and get rich off of it. And Congress has let them. They have failed to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. And now internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon can restrict websites, spy on your online activity, or sell your browsing history. Now, I don't want that. And if you don't want that, you need to use a VPN, and I use a VPN, and I use ExpressVPN. With one click, ExpressVPN shields my online activity from internet and mobile providers, as well as hackers and spies. ExpressVPN has easy-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer or your tablet or your phone. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing history by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. And you can get this for less than $7 a month. It's the same protection that I have. If you use public Wi-Fi, you need a VPN. I use ExpressVPN. It's the one I use. It's good. So take back your internet privacy today and find out how to get three months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash friends. That's e x p dot slash friends for three months free with a one-year package. expressvpn.com slash friends. If you've been listening to this show on a regular basis, you've heard me talk about Framebridge, they're a regular sponsor. I used them before they were a sponsor. Um, I'm not even gonna read the ad copy because I know what I wanna say. Um, You can send stuff to them. They will send you if you go online and tell them what you wanna wanna frame. If it's not something on your phone, uh, they will send you a package. I've done that. I have framed things. uh, I've I've talked about my framed Obama photo. I framed the cover of the Sports Illustrated. that I had a piece in. I also framed the piece. Um, But I use it the most for framing Instagram photos uh, from time with my friends. Most people only frame photos from like special occasions. If, If you went out with your friends and it was special enough to take an Instagram photo or you were visiting and it was special enough to take an Instagram photo, then it's special enough to like frame it and give it to someone, especially if it's just $39. Think about it. Like, Half of what you spend on dinner, like a couple of entrees and you have like some cute picture, you know, you're like the one where the like waiter took it and it's kind of awkward, but it's 39 bucks and it commemorates a time that you had together. So I, I highly encourage you to do that. It's also a great thank you gift. Um, if you visited someone or uh, went to a wedding, um, it's a way of like showing how much you enjoyed it and showing how much uh, that person means to you. You can let them know that maybe you got the same photo frame for yourself. So, you know, that it's meaningful and it's treasured by both of you. So reading the copy again, get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, and special events. And my listeners uh, can get an additional 15% off your first order if you use the promo code friends at framebridge.com. Again, that's framebridge.com. Promo code friends for 15% off your first order. I am actually almost happy to hear you say that you're not like a full-blown like pro- you know economic progressive, because I, I I do think that the country needs conservative thinkers, and that's almost why like I when when I read your question, did I somehow contribute to the rise of this dark force in American life with my adequacy of conservatism? Part of me wanted to say I don't think that's the right question because to me, where you personally may have. You know, been complicit. It wasn't an advocacy for conservatism, which I think actually has a place in American thought. It was for some specific bad ideas.
3: Yeah, yeah I think that's probably fair. Which
2: I don't know if necessarily are conservative.
3: Yeah.
2: And I would say the specific bad ideas would be the Iraq war and you know, free market uh, policies on Wall Street. But probably kind of coming to the end of our time. So if possible, I want to look forward. What are you thinking about the future these days? That's a big, big question. Sorry to spring it on you, right. but I am curious.
3: Well, I mean, as, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, I am wishing uh, ill fortune upon the Republican Party. I think that they need to be destroyed. And uh, I would hope that would begin in November with the Republicans losing as many seats as possible because, you know, as long as Republicans continue making electoral gains uh, w- by advocating uh, these, uh, you know, these, these racist and in, in xenophobic and in, in protectionist and isolationist policies, you're going to get more of the same. I mean, they have to wake up and realize uh, that they're not going to be rewarded politically uh, for catering uh, to this white nationalism that Donald Trump represents. And, and, you know, I would hope that they would pay a heavy price for that. And then, you know, looking forward, my my concern is in what's going to happen in, in 2020 because... M- m- you know, personally, as somebody who is, you know, a very centrist, moderate, conservative, I would not want to see, you know, a race between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I mean, don't get me wrong; in that situation, I would still vote for Bernie Sanders because I disagree with him. But I don't believe, you know, he is a a, a corrupt or or authoritarian or malign figure in the way that Donald Trump is. But that's just the choice I would I would rather not see. What I would really like to see would be the emergence of a more centrist alternative, either somebody winning the nomination of of the Democratic Party who's who's more in the center or perhaps running as a third-party candidate, kind of an American Macron who might be able to shatter this rotten two-party duopoly that, that dominates American politics. And, I mean, that's a very tall order. But I'm just concerned that the way we're going now, we're going to be continuing to see the Republican Party drift to the far right, the Democrats to the far left, and I think that's going to tear the country apart and it, it certainly leaves me, you know, kind of stranded in the middle.
2: I sort of don't agree <laughs> that you're stranded. I mean, I think that you've talked about feeling like you, you don't have a home within either party. And, and we've also talked about this as a journey. And I think that I guess part of me would like encourage you to think of where you are right now is not like in the middle between two extremes, but um, just having to think maybe a, a little more broadly about What community you're in, because maybe it's a a series of overlapping communities, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's not going to be like just Democrats. Like, I don't know if you'll ever be at home, like by just identifying as a Democrat. But for instance, um, people working towards racial reconciliation, that seems like something that you are very interested in and that you would be welcome in a community that seeks that. Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there are communities beyond kind of the big Republican versus Democratic division you're right I mean there are subdivisions within there that uh that, that are probably going to be more amenable to me I think you're right
2: like Russell Moore for instance like he's he's very interested in racial reconciliation he's a you know and he's an evangelical never a Trumper but he and I agree, disagree on plenty you know personally me and him but that is something that he's he and I very much agree on and I think that you know the three of us probably could
3: all <laughs> agree yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the one of the positive aspects of this of of, of the transformation that I've been experiencing in American politics has been experiencing even is that even though I have lost some friends, I've also made some new friends with you know finding some commonalities with with people on the center left as, as we come together to talk about our opposition to to Trump and realizing that we have a lot more in common than we used to realize, I think. So that's been one positive.
2: And I guess, I mean, again, I'm also just going to push back and say, like, I think it's broader than even the center left. Like, there are overlapping communities that you are going to be welcome to, you know, and that maybe some of those people in those communities are like me. Like, I'm basically like a DSA, you know, uh, liberal, pretty far out, you know, from you, I'm sure, like on economic issues. But again, there, you know, I, I you've written about the patriarchy, which is something that not a lot of former conservatives have even been willing to see. So I feel like you and I have a lot of things that we can work together on. I think that one problem in American politics has been, like you say, it's tribalism and it's the idea that you have to belong completely to one tribe or you're not in the tribe at all, right? Like, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I think we would do better as a country if we realized that no one, that very few people are going to ever be able to check every box, you know, to belong to a group. And yeah. it would be good if we accepted that some people might not, that the Venn diagram approach is better than the two sides approach, right?
3: Yeah. No, I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I appreciate that perspective a lot better than, than some of the invective I get from progressives online who are basically saying, you know, hey, you're a war criminal. Screw off. We don't want you. So I, that I don't appreciate so much what you're saying uh, makes a lot of sense to me.
2: I mean, I think I'm still going to work through some of my feelings about the Iraq War. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, um, because one of the biggest tragedies of, you know, the modern era, I would say, I actually, in preparation to talking to you, um, reminded myself of what the death count is on that. It's, you know, over 4,000 U.S. deaths and 600,000 Iraqis. So, I'm just—you're going to have to give me a minute on it, right? Okay. But— Yeah, I get it. I welcome you for these other things. And I, I think that you are in good—you know, in joining the, in those fights in good faith. So I don't want to—you know, so I, I I, am sad that you are getting the invective that would make you reconsider some of the other common causes. And speaking of common causes and patriarchy, I, I don't want to let this conversation end without asking you. And also speaking of tearing the country apart— um. You know we are talking on Wednesday prior to any um, report from the FBI or vote in the Senate on Brett Kavanaugh. I'm wondering if you do have a ten thousand foot view on that, however, that you can share now.
3: Well, I think it's 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 tragic what's happening because I think, you know, the the Supreme Court is getting increasingly politicized. And I think both the left and the right are contributing to that. And the Supreme Court has been one of those institutions that has kept, I think, a greater degree of public trust than other institutions, certainly greater than Congress, which is, you know, uh, you know, down there with the media as as being the most reviled institutions in America. Uh, but I, you know, this the 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 open partisanship that that Brett Kavanaugh displayed in his confirmation hearing, I thought was very disturbing. And I mean, my view of Brett Kavanaugh has been that he's more conservative than I am, and I don't really buy his his originalist philosophy anymore. I think that's a uh, basically a subterfuge for smuggling his own political preferences into, into his decision-making. But all that said, I mean, I before the before the sexual assault case arose, I thought he was well-qualified for the Supreme Court, and I thought that Trump had every right to appoint him. Any Republican probably would have appointed somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, so I would have supported his confirmation. And now, you know, I, I find myself unable to do that in, in part because— I don't think he was truthful with the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's a, that's a major problem for me. But also because he did not display a judicious temperament, and I get the fact that, you know, if he if he thinks that he's innocent, then he will react strongly to that. But uh, to being accused, but you know, I think he went over the top, and you know, his invective against Democrats and abuse of of uh, Amy Klobuchar, your senator, I guess now, mm-hmm. um, and you know, his. Uh, uh, you know, his conspiracy mongering about how this is payback for the Clintons and stuff like that. I think, you know, if he gets on the court, it's going to undermine public faith in, in the impartiality of the Supreme Court, which is already, I think, deeply undermined because, you know, you see all these 5-4 decisions where people are really voting along partisan party lines, and, and it doesn't feel like they're making an independent judgment based on the merits of the case, and I think that's tragic.
2: I wonder if there's sort of another level to this, though, which is actually the conversation that, again, name-checking Rick Wilson, uh, the conversation that Rick and I had last week, which is that for him, Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony, combined with what he heard from many of his female friends who conservative and Republican, was a—I'm sorry to use this analogy now in this serious context, but it's true— was the Jenga Tower falling down. Like, for Rick, hearing stories about his friends and colleagues experiencing sexual assault and the way that they didn't tell their stories and the way they didn't feel believed, and then seeing the treatment of Blasey Ford by Senate Republicans, it has changed his view of, of who he thought his compatriots were.
3: Yeah, yeah,
2: Probably, I would say, as much as the election of Trump.
3: Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, it certainly confirms my alienation from Republicans. And, you know, that utterly shameful, disgraceful, horrible performance by Donald Trump at that rally in Mississippi where he was mocking Dr. Ford, uh, I mean, it's just unconscionable. And, I mean, I've heard the same things that Rick has had from from many of my female friends about what they've endured and, you know, the complete lack of empathy, the viciousness, the cruelty— the inhumanity that Donald Trump displays and that, you know, other Republicans display to to varying degrees as well, I, you know, that's, that's deeply troubling to me. And, you know, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, I think it'll be an endorsement of, of that approach and it'll be, you know, a big up yours to, to a lot of women in this country.
2: Maybe not the best choice of phrase, but.
3: Yeah, sorry about think. that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but we also allow humor in this show. So yeah. I think we all knew exactly what you're saying.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm saying.
2: The occasional inelegant phrase can also be a chance to laugh.
3: Yeah. This is mm-hmm. not scripted. I, I'm make, this is Yeah, this that's makes how clear. I knew this it. Was, yeah, scripted. exactly. If
2: it was scripted, yeah. we would, it would have been better. But it's heartfelt yeah. and that counts. I really appreciate you coming on. I really admire your honesty and the way that you've examined your own beliefs and not only that I think you we didn't mention it so I'll I'll mention it here which is that beyond just doing a self-examination like you you decided to undertake a historical review right? Yeah. You didn't just look at your own columns you went back and read non-hagiographic histories of of republicans and conservative movement and I know that you get blowback from progressives who all they want to talk about is the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to say, like, I hope you you don't let that keep you from continuing your journey.
3: Well, thank you very much. No, it's not going to dissuade me. But I mean, there's, uh, I mean, there's going to be uh, haters out there on both sides. But I'm, you know, I can't be reacting to that. I really gotta think through what I think is is the best approach, and I'm I'm trying to do that. It's not easy.
2: If I may offer one one thought about that, though, I, this just came to me to sort of bring it back down to my experience in recovery and, you know, take what you like and leave the rest as far as like this piece of um, my own history goes. Uh, But something that's part of what we do in the 12 steps is that we, part of the amends process is to hear the testimony of the people that we may have hurt. Mm -hmm. And so like when you asked me, and I know honestly, earnestly asked me if there was more that I thought you could do in terms of like, answering for your complicitness. I feel weird suggesting this, but like maybe there's some more listening to do out there for you.
3: I don't know. You could well be right. Yeah. Yeah. I need to think about that.
2: And that is all I have. That's how we usually end our AA meetings too.
3: This recovering Republican thanks you uh, for for your insights.
2: You're a recovering Republican and conservative. You are welcome in my meeting anytime. I hope we'll have you on again sometime.
3: Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Seriously.
2: And that is it for the show. I'll be honest, um, recording this week uh, did not go well. Um, had some technical difficulties on all ends. Uh, and um, it's been quite a week. I'm recording this on Thursday morning. It looks like there's going to be a vote on Brett Kavanaugh. It looks like he's going to be confirmed. And I I feel a little hopeless And I am reminded, however, of something that I say uh, to women that I I talk to in 12-step programs when they are just starting out. That hope isn't a feeling. You know, hope is a practice. Hope is a muscle. You do not have to feel hopeful to practice hope. And in this context, I think that means just continuing to fight. I think that means not giving up. I think that means making sure you're registered to vote, making sure your friends are registered to vote, um, keeping writing letters, keeping making calls, knowing that this, I don't want to call it a defeat, this outcome isn't a defeat. Something changed in the past couple weeks. Something shifted. It may not have shifted enough to change this outcome, but I think it shifted enough to change us. That's it for the show. Please take care of
0: yourselves. This is a big year.